as our subject this morning. If memory serves me right, in the last four or five months, we looked at Philippians 1, at Paul's prayer for the church there in verses 10 through 13. We've also looked at Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, where Paul says, For this cause he bows his knees unto the Father and he prays. And now we look at Paul's prayer that finds its position right after Paul speaks of the great purpose of God. In verse 14, or 15 rather, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, remembering or making mention of you in my prayers. So Paul is unpacked in the first 14 verses the purpose of God settled in eternity, in Christ, chosen in Him, predestinated unto the adoption of sons. He's unpacked the great purpose of God, secured in Christ, in verse 7, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, and that's through His blood. He has unpacked the purpose of God summarized in Christ, verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might condense in summary. That's what the Greek word means there. Gather together in one everything in Christ, whether to be in heaven or on earth, even in him. And then he's unpacked the purpose of God, signed and delivered in Christ. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. It's done. It's sure. It's final. Verse 15, wherefore, I do not cease to pray for you. You can see the impact of this prayer where Paul is. Paul knows that for these great purposes that God has settled into eternity, secured in Christ, it's going to be summed up in Christ, and he's sealed by the Holy Spirit, is only going to be planted with two feet firmly in the center of this church if... God answers this prayer if, and He aims to, answers this prayer that will then give shape to your entire life. Because we know in chapter 4 when Paul begins to unpack the purposes of God planted in the church, the mystery of His will uncovered in the church, it works itself out in the body relationally, here, in your marriage, in your family, and in your workplace. There is no place in your life but what these purposes should not grab a hold of you and take shape, transforming your life little by little. Now you can see why Paul says, after those great purposes, he just says, looks around and says, brothers, I think we need to pray. And that's what we must do. This doesn't happen without God and without prayer. We must be a praying church. And we must pray this prayer. Paul's prayer has nothing to do yet with your physical health. It just doesn't. It's your spiritual health health that he's concerned about. The priority that should shape our prayer life is first and foremost always spiritual health. And then we get to the physical body. After our spiritual health. Paul establishes that pattern throughout Scripture. So God is telling us the supremacy of His name and His purposes and our spiritual health must be prioritized in prayer. It's first, 
Always. And then we get to all the things we need to pray about. Because when your spiritual health is growing, it affects your cancer, right? It affects your body that's wearing out. If your spiritual health is not good, your physical body has no impact on your soul in a good way, but in a negative way. So Paul's shape of his prayer is always spiritual health that then takes the shape of the body and relationships and circumstances because the one gives rise to the other. That must be the shape of our prayer life, publicly in church and privately. And I know it is in your life, and I thank God for it. So that was just a reminder. So now this this prayer, the center point of this prayer is the hope of His calling. That's the centerpiece. So what Paul is going to tell us before he's praying for the hope of His calling to take shape in our lives, he's going to tell us what feeds into that, what, what is it that God must do for you to realize the hope of His calling, and then what flows out of that hope, which is three statements Paul is going to give. What, what does hope look life, uh, like in, in church life? Three statements he'll give that we probably won't get to until this afternoon. Okay, so that, that's how we hope this is going to take shape this morning. So let's dig in. I'll read again verse 15. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, of majesty, of magnificent, of splendor, uh, He's impressive, we are awestruck by God, that Father whose glory is abundant, it is supplying, it is flowing to the church, what would He do? May give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now what does that mean? We're going to try to unpack these a section at a time. The word spirit in the KJV is lowercase little less. In some versions, it's uppercase big S. The Greek word will not settle it. That's why you have different ways that it's written. You cannot look at the Greek word and say, oh, that should be Holy Spirit or it should be your spirit, the spirit inside of you. So how do we settle it? Context must settle it. And it's still not easy. And I think either one are valid, but of course only one is right and true. And so if we just looked at the number of times the Greek word pneuma is used in the book of Ephesus, then the Holy Spirit wins, right? Out of the 15 times, I think there's three which it seems to be little s spirit. Now if we just include the KJV, here would be one we just read. In Ephesians 2.2, we know the Spirit there is not the Holy Spirit. Wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world... The prince of the power of the spirit that now is at work, right now, in the children of disobedience. That is not the Holy Spirit. That's lowercase, little less. And then Ephesians 4.23, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I suppose that could be Holy Spirit. KJV has little less, lowercase. So that spirit is a governing influence in your mind. Your mindset has a spirit to it. It's governed, influenced, it's directed, it holds sway in you. The rest of the times it's Holy Spirit, like in verse 13, sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So if it were based on the number of times, the Spirit wins. 
But could it be a combination? It could be. Because if we leave it lowercase spirit, we know that if you have the governing, influencing spirit of wisdom and revelation, where did you get it? The Holy Spirit. So I'm going to take the easy way out, right? We're going to say it's both. Now that's not right. It's either one or the other. But I'm going to show you how it's got to be both, even though this word is one or the other. So Holy Spirit governs and influences us so that our spirit that we have is governed by this wisdom and revelation. And of course, one more is Ephesians 5.18 with the Holy Spirit. There, we're told to be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with spirit, uppercase spirit, Holy Spirit. That's not a one-time feeling. I think that's the imperative mood. Every day, we need to be governed, influenced, directed, the Holy Spirit holding sway over what? Our spirit. So that's how the two come together. So if we're governed by the Holy Spirit in such a way that we're being filled and the Holy Spirit is having sway over our spirit, what's happening? What is the spirit of wisdom and revelation? So there are two places. Paul has already used the word wisdom. We'll go there. And then he's going to use the word revelation in Ephesians 3, uh, 1, 2, and 3 so we can understand exactly what he's talking about. The word wisdom here in context means wisdom concerning the divine plan of God. He just unpacked it, right? When God is giving you a disposition of wisdom, you're, you're able to see something. And the revelation means to disclose something, to uncover it. And the implication here, there is that you, you know it, you see it. Or the eyes of your understanding is enlightened, right? All right, the first time he uses the word wisdom in verse 8 of chapter 1, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Having, participle tells us, here it is, having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. All right. Wherein, points back to the riches of his grace, he overflowed in grace to you, how? In wisdom and prudence. Wisdom of the divine plan, that's what Paul is unpacking now. And prudence means insight. It's, it's being able to see with penetrating insight. <clears throat> I guess like Superman could penetrate the fog or the smoke and see right to the middle of it and what's going on there. You have been given insight to why we have a corrupt government and why everything is happening in this universe, or particularly in this country. Can you see it? Can you see behind the scenes? And of course, we are, we are learning a lot of behind the scenes stuff, aren't we? But in that, do you have a penetrating insight that penetrates the fray of everything that's happening and unveils something in a large way it's going to keep you on track as a church. What is it? God has made known to you the mystery of His will. His will. Mystery, we'll see in Ephesians 3, just means it was hidden in ages past. Will means He determined this. He wanted this. He chose it. 
On what basis was God influenced to make this choice? Good pleasure, not bad pleasure, not evil pleasure, not wrong pleasure, not unrighteous pleasure, good pleasure. He purposed in himself. Nobody counseled him. Nobody instructed him. He didn't consult any book or any people. It came right out of himself. And it's good. And he decided to let you in on it so that in your life you have penetrating insight about everything that's happening. What did he unpack for us? Verse 10. That in the dispensation... Of the fullness of times. Dispensation. Stewardship, arrangement, administration. Fullness coming to its completeness. Times, kairos. Ages, eras, seasons. What marked the end of the ages in the administration of God's sovereign will. Galatians 4 tells us that in the fullness of the times, plural, He sent Jesus, His Son. That brought to a completion and a fullness the end of all ages past, Mosaic and the age of empires. And yes, I know that's a game. The age of the empire spoken of in the Old Testament alongside of the Mosaic age was brought to completion and fullness. And now you know it. You know it. Why? That He might gather together in one everything. You have the insight to everything that's happening because it's all moving to this final summary. One Greek word for gather together in one. Condense in summary. To condense means to make it more dense or to concentrate. The idea is to bring to one focal summary. One focal point. Jesus Christ. Every single human being in every single event from the dust that's flying before your eyes to the sparrow that falls is going to be brought to a fullness of the times in the church age where Jesus Christ will be the focal point of everything and all will bow down to His supremacy. And you will be there. You will be there. Why? That He might have the preeminence, the parallel in Colossians 1. He is before all things. By Him all things consist. He is the firstborn from the dead. He's the beginning. He's the head of the church that He might have preeminence in everything. And He is going to have it. And now either this is just reminder or now you know. God has opened the eyes of your soul to give you wisdom of the divine plan and insight, penetrating insight focused in the one who is your head, the head of Jesus Christ. What is the impact that Paul thinks this should have? This is why he's praying. We'll just read the rest of the book. 
concerning the church and your relationships. How will we get back on track if we've gotten off to this great, amazing purpose by hearing Paul again and again? So God has been lavish and abundant and overflowing like the imagery of a cup overflowing and just keeps overflowing to you in wisdom and the divine plan in giving you penetrating insight to His will. And what is that here early on in the great large purpose? He's going to summarize everything in Christ. And you're part of a grand demonstration that's going to take place one day. Gloriously. And if you have faith in Christ, you're on the right side. All because of the good pleasure of the sovereign will of God and no other reason. So Paul is praying that God would give you the spirit of that wisdom and that insight. Which apparently God has to keep giving it to us. That's the one, one word, the one side of it, the spirit of wisdom. This would govern your soul, what Christ is doing. It would have an influence and a directing sway on your life. So we got to pray, Lord, give us that. I don't always have that. You don't either. All right, Revelation, what's that? Ephesians 3. Let's do some more review. Verse 1, for this cause I, Paul. Now in just a minute we're going to understand what cause he's talking about. Because it's very important as it relates to this. I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, I'm in prison. Why? For you Gentiles, if you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, it's been given to me for you, how that by revelation, same word, Paul is praying that we would have wisdom and revelation. Now, how does this work? How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I afore wrote in few words, just a very few words. Where is that? Ephesians 1 9 and 10. He just wrote it, we just said it. You may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known. This is what makes it a mystery. It just wasn't known in the ages or eras, Mosaic age, age of empires, all that. Old time, never was made known. Now it has to you. What a privilege. As it is now revealed unto His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, and that the nations would be fellow heirs with the Jews. That was not known. That was covered up. It was alluded to. By and large, they didn't know it until now. Nations. Nations. So here's how this works. Paul receives revelation directly from Jesus Christ. He writes it, you read it, you get understanding. How will this penetrating insight come that he's praying for? Reading, reading, reading. You've got to read. You've got to think. We need to know. Now, obviously, Paul is praying. It means it's just not natural thinking, right? I'll just read it and think of it for myself. No, we need the Father of glory to grant through our reading, an understanding, a penetrating knowledge here of the divine plan as it relates and unpacks in my life so that it has an impact on my marriage and my family and other people. Impact meaning I don't impact other people, it's impacting me towards other people. They may not like me, right? It's impacting me toward other people. And it's charting my course because this Spirit, this Holy Spirit in my spirit is a 
governing, inclining, influencing thing that I've got to pray for and I've got to seek God for. Now, what is the cause, Paul, that you're a prisoner as it relates to this revelation? Verse 21, In whom all the building fitly framed together unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are being builded together for an habitation, a dwelling place of God, through the Spirit for this cause. The revelation of the mystery for which you read Paul so that you have understanding is related to the church. God aims to dwell here and He's going to do it through the spirit of wisdom and revelation as we understand His purposes and as they play out relationally in the church of Jesus Christ, which means the church becomes a focal point. What do I mean by that? I mean it becomes a focal point in your life as it relates to this purpose. Paul is so caught up with this that he digresses beginning in verse 2. He picks up again in verse 14 and says, For this cause, what cause? The church being built together. What does he do? He says, Brothers, I'm going to put down my pen for a minute. We need to pray. Well, he didn't put it down. He kept writing. But he said, Drop to your knees again. This is so stupendous. This is, we need God so much. Pray. And what does he say? For this cause, I bow my knees. That's connected to the same cause in verse 1 of chapter 3, which is connected to the building fitly framed together because without God, we are disjointed and we become what is now being called expressive individuals. Now recently we talked about narcissism. It gets even better. Or should I say it gets even worse. We live in a culture of expressive individualists. Talked about by the great thinkers, they call them great, of hundreds of years ago. But now rushing forward with great intensity. I'm sorry, put that on the shelf. We'll get back to that in a minute. So there it is. The spirit of wisdom of the divine plan and revelation through Paul and the apostles. They have written. It's unpacked for us. We go to the Bible. We read and God grants us understanding. Consider what I say in all things and the Lord give you understanding. Understanding. He must give it. So we pray. But this wisdom and revelation has a direct object in the knowledge of Him, and that's Christ. So that's our next word or phrase we unpack here. So Paul's not just praying that you get wise or that you understand things. He wants it to be in Christ, for which every purpose, should say the eternal purpose singular, but the purposes he unpacked in chapter 1 are all in Christ over and over again. In Him, in Him, in Him. Everything hangs on being in Christ. So what does this knowledge of Him mean that gives shape to the wisdom and understanding or wisdom and revelation that we have and that we need? The word knowledge is a compound word, epi, prefix, gnosis, which is a common word in Scripture. But when you put the two together, it intensifies it, makes it deeper makes it more accurate, more precise. It makes it experiential and perhaps most important, it makes it transformative. Whenever you see epignosis, I don't even like the way that sounds, but I've been saying it wrong, epignosis, but we'll just say knowledge here, right? The epi intensifies the gnosis and changes it from a 
one-dimensional kind of knowledge to a 3D picture. Three-dimensional. You ever been in one of those movies in 3D? Put the glass on. I kind of like it. And, you know, there, there's a fight going on. The sword, and the guy swings the sword, and it comes out over your head almost, and you duck. There's depth. There's depth of this knowledge. So it moves from a one-dimension kind of flatline knowledge to a depth. And when it does, in most every case when this word is used, about 20 times, it's transformative. Now I want to give you a few. I'm going to take the time. We'll go away from the text here and give you about three or four because it's important to see this. This is what the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Him is going to do for you. It's what it has to do for us. If we're going to be joined together and fitly compacted, it has to do this. Or we're just individuals kind of getting together and having some good food and hearing a sermon. I know you get that. All right? So listen to Romans 3.20. We know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world become guilty. For by the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the epignosis of sin, knowledge. Now, you know what sin is. I don't have to tell you that. You go to the law and look at it. You know it's sin to disobey your parents and dishonor them. I know that. You know that. You know you're not to kill somebody. I know that's sin. You know it's not right to take a man's wife or a woman's husband. That's adultery. You know stealing is wrong. You know false witness is wrong. And you know covetousness is wrong. But do you epignosis it or know it? What's the difference? It's when the law of God on the page comes and enters your soul. Now you know sin because you have guilt, you have conviction, and you have what? Repentance. Repentance is transformative because you're now turning. That one-dimensional knowledge you had of God and the law, and you knew it was sin, but now you have a 3D kind of knowledge that is transforming you through repentance. That's the word that Paul is using. Romans 10.1 Brethren, my heart's desire for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to epignosis. They don't have 3D knowledge. They just got flatline one-dimensional knowledge. Now, who would dare suggest that Israel didn't know their God, right? Sure we know them. We've heard Him. We've seen the movement of God in the camp. We've seen the fire from heaven and the kind of glory descending on the temple or the tabernacle. We know. We have gnosis. But what's the mark of not having the 3D knowledge? They weren't being transformed by it. And this is what Paul says. Because they going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. What was not being transformed in their life? No submission. Will not turn, will not submit to Christ because they had no 3D knowledge of God. Just gnosis. Now gnosis in the Bible can be transformative, but often it's not. But... Epignosis is bringing about what? Submission, transformation. And then one more, and then we'll go back to Ephesians. Philippians, or Philemon, verse 6. Paul is going to encourage Philemon to forgive Onesimus, the runaway slave. He met him in Rome by providence. He's converted. 
Paul sends him back as a faithful Christian. He's going to implore him to forgive. And this is what he says. I've been praying for you, Philemon. Paul is such a masterful apostle. He's going to kind of gently push Philemon into a corner. He says that the communication of your faith being effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing that is in you in Christ Jesus. Acknowledging is the word we're talking about, the compound word. Communication. When you communicate communion, there's someone you're communicating with. So Philemon, I want your faith to be communicated to Onesimus. Effectually means operative and active by the epignosis of every good thing in you in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What's in Philemon? Jesus is. What's the good thing that's there because Jesus is there? Forgiveness. Up until this point, perhaps, Philemon only has a one-dimensional gnosis of forgiveness. He's heard Paul preach it. He's read it. He knows the basis. I get it. As God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven me. Forgive others. But now, now it's going to turn three-dimensional. It's going to be transformative because when this slave looks him in the eyes, And says, Philemon, will you forgive me? Epignosis is going to say, yes, brother, and embrace him. Experiential. He's going to experience the good thing called Christ in him only when he forgives others. Transformative. Is your knowledge of Christ transforming you? If it's not, Ephesians 4 is not going to take root in this church. It's not going to happen. Now, let's get to one other place in Ephesians 4 where this word is used. Paul, when he begins to unpack the purposes as it it puts rubber on the ground, shoe on the ground, what's that idiom? Anyway, when it starts to work out walk in our lives, he would say that the ascended Christ has given some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. There's that compound word. Unto a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now the word come is a verb which means arrive. Like you're going on a vacation. You, know, you pack up the car, everybody gets in the car, and now you're going to start driving until you arrive. So the verb there is arriving. So we're, we're always arriving at this and moving towards it. So with this arrival, there's a car that the church, all the church is in. We're in one car. And then there's a destination we're arriving at. Right? The car has two facets in it. The front seat and the back seat, or however you want to divide it up, there's two parts of this car that, that all the church gets in. Arriving at the unity of the faith. Oneness of the common faith. One faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father, multiple gifts. All the gifts get in the car called church. All the gifts are there. All kinds of different gifts. In a oneness that's moving in a direction together. Not expressive individualism, but unity. Many one. Where is this unity going? The knowledge of the Son of God. It's a transformative knowledge. We all get in the car. We're saying more than, get your arm off me, move your foot out of the way. We're doing what? Speaking truth in love. Where are we trying to arrive? A perfect man. Singular, not plural. That just means maturity. 
So we're in this car of a one unity of the faith. The knowledge of the Son of God is transforming everybody in the car so that we're moving together towards maturity of a single man, a single person. All the gifts coming together in Christ, this common faith. According to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we be no more immature or children. Tossed to and fro by our own individualism, what we want to do, by men that lie in wait, the slight of men, the cunning craftiness of men that lie in wait, but speaking truth to one another in this car together, moving to glory, we're speaking truth in love, and we grow up in Him in all things, from whom the whole body is doing what? Fitly joined together. Now here's the question. What role does Epignus' knowledge of the Son of God play in that? If you don't have that, you're tossed. Or you're here and you're tossed. Or you're here because you just have to be. Or you're here and you don't participate. Because you don't have insight. And you're not asking for this wisdom. And you're not knowing the Son of God that's going to transform you and shape you. And your gifts that Christ ascended from the grave and death to give you for the purpose of community church so that you could be joined together with people that are different like Jews and Gentiles and you don't like what they do and I don't like what they do and we don't eat the same food and all that goes on with that, right? I'm awkward and you're awkward and, and all that goes in with that. So what? Is it my purpose or His? You need to settle that today, right? Or what happens? Disjointed. Unhealthy church. I'm hanging out of the car. Because I don't like what's going on in the car. Now that's the impact on this word. And why Paul, right after the great purposes of God, he bows his knees to the Father says, Lord, give them the Spirit, a controlling disposition from the Holy Spirit of the divine plan and revelation so that they have insight in the knowledge of the Son of God so that it's transforming them. Rather than being pulled away from the purpose, they are moving in, moving in, moving in. Would that describe you? If not, you need to go back to the knowledge of the Son of God and ask God. Of course, the point is we... No matter what our health is, we ask God for that every day. Any given day, we can be drawn away. There's so much in our society and culture to subtly draw us out before we even know it. And God this morning, right here this morning, is calling you back in. Because that's what He does every Sunday with us. Graciously calls us back into His purpose where you'll find fulfillment, satisfaction for your soul because He's saved you for that end. Okay, so the next phrase then that we'll look at, because this is leading into the hope of His calling that apparently we'll get to this afternoon, that the God, verse 17, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, so that you may know this hope. See how critical it is, this prayer. What does He mean by the eyes of your understanding being enlightened? So, Eyes mean you see. And of course the point is you, you see knowledge. The whole aim 
is to see him. That's going to give shape to the rest of the book. Let's look at some of these words here. The eyes of your understanding. Some translations use cardia for heart. This is dianoia. There's no appreciable difference in terms of what Paul is saying. Like the heart involves more than the mind. It goes down to the affections and will. Understanding here is more than what's going on in your brain. It means a way of thinking, feeling, and desiring. So that encompasses more than just I'm thinking on something. It's, it's how we feel about something. Very important in what we desire. So the eyes of your understanding, having been enlightened, I say it that way because it's a perfect passive verb. A completed action that's happened in the life of a believer in the time, somewhere one time in the past, only one time, with continuing results. The divine passive. Why do we call it divine? Well, who did it? Passive settles the issue. You didn't. You did not. You cannot enlighten yourself. Dead men can't see. Ephesians 2.1 Divine passive here. You did not enlighten yourself. Botizo, you didn't do it. Who did? God. Read Ephesians 2.1-4. You got your answer. The effect of His giving you eyes... Now you see. There's where you're active. Is there any activity for me? Yeah. See now. Understand. That's where you come in. That's where I come in. You're active there. You're passive in the enlightenment. But called to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great fight of affliction. You were illuminated by Jesus Christ, just like Paul was illuminated. He's a prototype. You were going on your road to Damascus to do something. And it wasn't Jesus. He came. And He comes gloriously. You've been enlightened so that you may know. What's the purpose of this enlightenment, Paul? So that you may know the hope of this calling. It's going to transform you. It's got to transform us. Now, I want to stop here and, and do a parallel verse in Ephesians 4, 17, 18, because there's a real danger for us. Having the eyes of our understanding enlightened so that we know, we know Him, we know the plan, we know God's uh, wisdom that He's unpacked in the plan, and we, we have insight through the revelation of Paul as he gives us understanding as we read it and think about it. But there's a danger of joining sides with those whose understanding is darkened. So Ephesians 4.17, when Paul is unpacking what the church is supposed to be and how they're to be joined together, he says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord. Because you're supposed to be joined together and fitly compacted and, and supplying that which every joint, every member is to be supplying according to the effectual working of every part to the edifying of the body of itself in love. Therefore, on that basis, this is what I say. Do not walk as other Gentiles walk. Unsaved people. Well, how do they walk, Paul? In the vanity of their mind. See? Now Paul's going to unpack what futility of mind means and what you and I are in danger of. Or he wouldn't say don't walk that way. Because you've been enlightened doesn't mean you can't walk that way. You can. So don't. Well, tell me, what's the impact if I do? 
unhealthy church, nobody joining, nobody supplying with their spiritual gift, expressive individualism. No unity of faith, no knowledge of the Son of God. Why? Because my eyes have been diverted. Now let's look at that. Participle having, I'm in verse 18 of chapter 4. Having their understanding darkened. Being, next participle, alienated from the life of God. Estranged from the very life of God. Knowing Him and everything about His supremacy. Total alienation. How? Through the ignorance that is in them. Them. Because of the blindness or the porosis of their heart. Could be translated hardness. Translated here blindness. Porosis. Paul is going to take the divine scalpel on humanity and cut open the chest and take a saw like open heart surgery and rip the bones back. I cringe every time I think of such a surgery. And look into the heart, which is not a physical heart, but this disposition, and he sees hardness, hardness. Whose fault is that? It's their own hardness. It's owing to them, not God. Paul says, their understanding is darkened, darkened. Now, what is this porosis and blindness? Don't, shouldn't we pity blind people? I mean, if you see a blind person, you don't think, well, there goes a blind person. He just, you know, got himself into that. Some people are born blind. Why is this culpable? Why does blindness mean judgment? Because it's a hardness of affections and will and desire and preference. Right? Ephesians 2, 3. Among whom we all had our conversation in times past. In the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and dianoia. Same word understanding in Ephesians 1, 18. Same word understanding in Ephesians 4, 18. Dianoia. What is it about the dianoia that makes us culpable? Desires. They're doing what they want to do. Nobody's forcing them. Nobody's making them. It's through their own ignorance. Paul is saying, church, don't be ignorant again. Ignorance gives rise to unholiness, according to 1 Peter 1.13. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to your former ignorance. You didn't know God, and your ignorance did what? unholiness and ungodliness. Don't walk that way. What happens in a society whose collective consciousness vanishes? The next verse. Who being past feeling. And here's something we need to understand about the darkness. A darkened understanding can get darker or less dark, depending on Revelation. A darkened understanding is totally cut off, totally alienated from God, but not from revelation. Romans 1, for the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that all humanity has no excuse. 
God has given general revelation mediated through creation. And when they knew God in their darkened understanding, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened from darkness to darker. And then there's the revelation to conscience. Romans 2. God has revealed the law immediately in the conscience of every human being so that they accuse and excuse one another. The alarm system in the conscience. Now what's happening in Ephesus, the society is just like here today. They're being past feeling, which means insensible to pain. Calloused. Not physical pain. What? The conscience has been disarmed. The wires have been snipped. Now they're past feeling. So what happens next? They have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now I want to show you how this is our society. How did we get to a place so quickly that we see this happening? Barclay elaborates on the Greek word aselgia, which is the word for lasciviousness. The great characteristic of this Greek word is this. The bad man usually tries to hide his sin, sin, but the man who has aselgia, lasciviousness in his soul, does not care how much he shocks public opinion so long as he can gratify his desires. I don't need to tell you we're living in that culture. Fifty years ago, if a man wanted to be a woman, he just hid it. Maybe did it at home. But now, no shame, no blushing. What happened? This? How did it get here so fast? The conscience is being cut. The collective conscience is vanishing. And so they give themselves over to a greater darkness. As God does what? Gives them over in Romans 1. Well, for God has also given them over to the lust of their own hearts to work all aselgia, lasciviousness, same word. Unbridled lust, that's what it means. What was bridled lust, I'm not going to do that in public. The man's still bad, the the understanding's still dark. Now, it's unbridled. I will do it and I will demand everyone affirm my expressive individualism from government to every walk of life. The definition of expressive individualism, a a man in a a book, can't remember the book or the name, and found it on the internet. The term suggests that not only a desire to pursue one's own path, but also a yearning for fulfillment through the definition and articulation of one's own identity. Who am I? It is a drive both to be more like whatever you already are and also to live in society by fully asserting who you are. The capacity of individuals to define the terms of their own existence by defining their personal identities is increasingly equated with liberty and with the meaning of some of our basic rights and it is given pride of place in our self-understanding. Again, 
You can be whatever you want to be. There's no, there's no external demands. There's no authority that we look to. Simply the authority of the individual or self-deification. Now that came in in the garden, right? The tree was seen as a tree desired to make one wise and to make them as gods knowing good and evil. And so in that kind of individual expressive kind of way, you, you get to decide who you are. Do you want to be a man? Do you want to be a woman? It's all based on your feelings and your desires. Another man by the name of Mark Sayers sums up several beliefs connected to a society of expressive individualists or where God gives them over, they give themselves over to unbridled lust. No shame, just here it is. The book is The Disappearing Church. The highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression in such a society. Traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, and social ties that restrict individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. That's happening. Defund police is wholly and completely related to that point. It's oppressive. It must be deconstructed. Patriarchalism in the family is oppressive. It must be destroyed. Why? for self-expression and expressive individualism, which means I can be what I want and nobody, nobody from the present down can tell me otherwise. The world will inevitably improve as the scope of individual freedom grows. Technology, in particular the Internet, will motor this progression toward utopia. The primary social ethic is tolerance of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. Any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is dangerous and must not be tolerated. Therefore, social justice is less about economic or class inequality and more about issues of equality relating to individual identity, self-expression, and personal autonomy. Based on what? Your desires. Lasciviousness. Humans are inherently good. Large-scale structures and institutions are suspicious at best and evil at worst. Forms of external authority are rejected and personal authenticity is lauded. And what is authenticity to them? Self-expression. The man that says he's a woman and acts like it, he's just being authentic. Carl Truman writes an article in World Magazine. He's a professor of religion at uh, Grove University. He says, how did we get here so fast? And I think he's on to something. He said, the thinkers of the past, from Freud, Darwin, Nietzsche, Rousseau, they all were talking about expressive individualism in many different ways. Nobody's reading those guys. Guess what? I don't read those guys. How is it that their ideas have come to the forefront so quickly? Truman calls it the digital self. Now you just be objective for a minute. See if this is not true. The internet allows us to bend all of creation to meet my desires. I work where I want through the internet. I worship where I want through the internet. I shop where I want through the internet. I listen to what I want through the internet. 200 years ago, if you wanted to listen to music, you had to take your instrument to a group of people 
and you had to go to that group of people to listen. When I was a boy, you had to get in the car or get in your room or get where there was a stereo. Now, you listen to what you want, when you want, where you want, 24-7 if you want. What's the point? The digital age has brought all of creation to the sovereign self and gives you everything you desire. And what, what's happening now? Public performance through social media, it's rapidly increasing because of the digital self. We've exchanged the glory of the uncorruptible God made like into an image of corruptible man. What is the image? The image of self. The image of what I want. The image of my own self-expression. The image of my own identity. Why are parents taking their children to drag shows? Not because they think they're sexualizing. They think they're born that way. Their identity is based on that. They want to give them the freedom to express themselves in whatever way they want because the individual is king and sovereign. Now what's the upshot for us? Beloved, we've got to get our nose out of the internet some. It's dangerous. Working from home and shopping from home, all good, fine. But be careful. The world is being bent to your affections and your desires. Be careful of the impact on your soul. Be careful that it doesn't happen to you like Paul says. The understanding darkened. Being alienated from God. Why? Because you put in the place of desire for God, desire for self and self-expression. Through the ignorance that is in you because of the blindness of the heart. And you're given over to expressive individualism. Which says what I want, what I feel, what I desire is king. And God showed us the consequences when we think that way in Genesis 3. And there are consequences. That, that's the fool that says, there's no consequences here, I can do it. Yeah, you can do it. But the consequences, you're driven out from God. What's the impact of what Paul is saying on church life? When we tend towards expressive individualism, and even not in that extreme, right? That, that was extreme, what we see in society. But we, we all have the struggle of our individual desires, right? What happens when you give way? Church is... Church? What? See? When you don't come on a Sunday. In fact, some of you won't be here this afternoon. Is it because of individual expressionism? It's a beautiful day. Is it because you just desire to be somewhere else? Why is it? Now, some of you won't be here for a good reason. But some of you, it's just going to be, I don't want to. You're already going down the pathway of self-expression, what you want, rules, rather than what does God want? What does He say to you? Is it hard? Yes. Is the sun shining? Yes. Am I tempted to be out there with it? Yes. And there's a thousand places I might be tempted to go. But one day in thy house is better than a thousand elsewhere. How you and I have this spirit of wisdom and revelation for which God has opened your eyes to see it and know it. Why? 
to be part of a moving organism called the church where his purposes are being carried out against the darkness by bringing the darkness into the light as he rescues and saves the nations, people out of the nations, for which he designs to use you if you and I pray and if you and I have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are a great God, and as we hear your word again, it always has the same impact, a warming of our heart and love and desire towards you, and also a warming of the heart called conviction. And I experience it over and over, Lord. So I thank you for being so faithful to us that you won't just let us go on in our ways, go on and being darkened all over again. The sealing of the Spirit is permanent, and you keep rescuing. You keep delivering. You keep coming. And Lord, how we desire for this church and all the relationships in it to be more like what this hope would bring for us. Marriages and families and relationships. Not where there's no sin. Not where there's no conflict. Not where we're in this car, we don't elbow someone and we have to seek forgiveness. But people that are unified with one purpose for the glory of your matchless name and being satisfied and all that Christ Jesus is for us. Lord, now we see why Paul is praying. Help us, Lord. Help us. We need you desperately. Come to us. Make this a reality. Start today in this church and transform it in a radical way as we just keep walking towards glory, arriving because we've already arrived, and nothing we do can change that, but arriving in a way that we are resting and glorifying and rejoicing And Jesus Christ, the one who put us in the car, the one who redeemed us, the one whose purposes will ripen fast, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. May you have all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.